Ah, oh, geez, Rick. Since Justin Roiland is out at Adult Swim and Rick and Morty need to be recast, <laughs> who would you pick to voice this grandpa and grandson traveling through the multiverse? Uh, I'm Katie Rich. I've never watched a minute of Rich, Rick and Morty. Uh, but, you know, Noah Jupe always seemed like a Aww. kid star who uh, had it together and was going places. Uh, so let's have him and we'll reunite him with his No Sudden Move co-star, Benicio Del Toro. <laughs> He's got the That'll voice. <laughs> I, that would be wild. I am... Uh... I'm Matt Patches. I like that we don't say why Justin Roiland is out at uh, Rick and Morty. If you haven't figured this out, go to Polygon. Read about it. It's really sad. Um, and not, I mean, not that we should have sympathy for Justin Roiland in this situation. I want to be clear. Uh, my suggestion is that Dave Gonzalez voices Rick because he kind of sounds like Rick. Yeah. Whenever I li- listen to Rick and Morty or when I watch Rick and Morty, I think of Dave. Um, and I don't know if, Dave, you've adopted the Rick cadence over the years of watching Rick and Morty, or if they found inspiration, you know. But I, I think you could play Rick, and, and I'll play Morty! <laughs> yeah! I like this because it gives me a new job. Hi! I'm David the Seven, <laughs> and I'm gonna go with Timothy Chalamet and Danny DeVito. Just, they don't have to try to do voices, just those, those are the new voices. Moving on. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here, this is the war room! Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you, it's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 421. It's Pandemic 155. Oh boy, we're still doing this. Well, I guess... Well, that uh, is five, five weeks later than our last Pandemic Weekly Check. Wow, we're back! Been- 2023, baby! It is uh, almost February, but here we are kicking off the new year, uh, and it is pandemic because we uh, are down one cast uh, uh, podcast member who has COVID. So, David, uh, yeah, that's true. Please recover soon. <laughs> uh, we are rooting for you, uh, and we miss you. Uh, it's also Wednesday, January twenty fifth. It's the day that in nineteen sixty one, JFK hosted the first live presidential news conference. I guess that makes sense. He had Yay. that televised debate where Nixon. Or sweat. did he? Oh, I'm starting a new JFK-related conspiracy <laughs> based on this. I feel like a segment It was just his Hall of Presidents happened. animatronic, and <laughs> yeah. it was all a hoax. I feel like us diving into JFK conspiracy theories, there's a, there's a segment of listeners who would be into that. Um, new year, new... Year. I wonder if we have new listeners from our appearance on Quiz Quiz Bang Bang. It's totally possible, so if so... Thank you. Uh, wow. If anyone hasn't... Starting off on the right If foot. anyone hasn't listened to uh, our trivia episode from last week, it was a delight. So that was really fun. That was a good excuse not to have any regular episodes. I don't know. I was glad glad, glad for a format change. But we're going to keep it the regular format. But now we're, now back we're back to, to do, do what we do every week. <laughs> what do we do on the podcast? Uh, well, sometimes we, sometimes we read reviews that people have left us. And Dave is not here. It's but true. Dave said he Dave might... Everything else Dave said he might be on top of it. Do we have oh, reviews? we have reviews. We have emails. We did too many non-episodes with reading stuff to talk about <laughs> mobile games this week. So let's kick it off. This one's from uh, her H E R R E. Maybe it's here. One two four. Who said five stars? Paying it forward. I already left a review this year. This is, comes from last year. But I submitted a question to the Little Gold Men for their mailbag, and Katie responded to it, so I felt I needed to pay the kindness forward oh. and ensure there was a review so she didn't have to listen to video game talk. <laughs> Thank you really all for another nice. year of podcasting. <laughs> Thank you all for your podcasting. It's been a treat to spend an hour or so with you each week, and I really appreciate the work that goes into putting the podcast out with everything you have going on. 
I hope you all have a nice holidays and enjoy some time off on podcasting and other labor. I think we did. I think we did. did. I think we did. Think so. Yeah, we got there. <laughs> yeah. It depends on if you uh, name children as labor as other labor. You know, yeah, part there's, of there's, your part of your life. There's no escaping that labor, unfortunately. <laughs> this one comes from Sweet Calves, who said another five star review, Hell and yeah. it did gave five stars. I wrote a review several years ago, but figured it was time once again. Yesterday on Christmas Eve, I watched Meet Me in St. Louis and remembered that Katie had talked about it when discussing Filmstruck's oeuvre. So I went over to the archives oh, and wow. found you all talked about it back in 2018. Wow. It was the episode where David recounted his experience of sitting in an AMC for 12 MCU movies in a row. I don't know if you remember it, but he spent the first 10 minutes just talking about people's fart and BO. Also, how quaint <laughs> is it that back then there was only just 19 MCU movies? Infinity War had just come out. Anyways, uh, your discussion of Meet Me in St. Louis was great, and I'm so impressed that a young Charlie could actually hang with this slow, low-stakes movie. Another funny thing from the episode is David claiming that no kid of his would ever watch a Pixar movie on repeat, <laughs> or much less so a CGI D- Disney animated film. Did he really say a going? Pixar movie? That- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Patches, you and I got there first in parenthood, and I think we were both sitting waiting, waiting for David to eat his words, and we've never oh, yeah. really called him out on it. I Let's just remember this when he's back on the show and, and remind him that he said it that explicitly, because uh, Wally Indeed, took over his life. I still think ruined him. I still think there's room for his child to tumble too, like into the dredges. <laughs> oh yeah, of kid he's content. gonna be watching there's PJ no masks it. before you know it. Oh, his friends are gonna get all the PJ mask toys, <laughs> the Paw Patrols, <laughs> such and such. Uh, Sweet Cavs continues. I've dropped many movie podcasts over the years, but I've been listening to you all faithfully for over a decade. You're great. P.S. When are Griffin Jesus. or David going to guess on this podcast? I don't. I mean, know I think they, they have before. Yeah, oh, that's we true. caught them. We caught them when they were youngins, and now they're biggins. Oldins, uh, oldins. <laughs> no, we're, biggins? we're the oldins, unfortunately. Biggins, <laughs> biggins. We're all they're old. Old. They're old, and we are old. Come on, that's right. And the answer is whatever they want to. I, I think. I don't think any of us are have a no blank check guests rule. Uh, yeah, we have we Jordan have our blacklist, so we're just not going to share it on the air. <laughs> uh, exactly. <laughs> All right, this one is from Julie Andrews. I'm guessing not that one. Five stars. A great no, no. way to find new movies. Such a wonderful show. I love to hear you talk movies from the super technical elements to how they made you feel. Question for today or another time. On this pod and others, Katie has pointed me in the direction of some of my favorite new movies this year. Thank you, Katie. What a gift. Yay. Gay. Yay. Uh, uh, or I guess it's favorite new movies to me what? this year. All right, all right. So these are not from this year, but they are movies Katie's recommended in the past year. What a gift. All About Eve, Stage Door, The Best Years of Our Lives, and Brief Encounter. Hearing those titles, wow. are there any others that come to mind? Ooh. Uh, like just like old classic movies? old movies? I mean, I wonder if she's watched Sunset I mean, Java Boulevard. was watching The Apartment. Uh, like, oh, yeah. I mean, ooh, oh my God, The Apartment. The Apartment feels like it was made yesterday. Like, that movie holds up. Crazy well, except for the rent price. Uh, as for the jo- rent. started Java yelling. Oh yeah, what's what's what is hey, the wah, wah, what is the apartment cost? I can't, I can't remember. I haven't watched it. I think it's like seventy six or seventy eight dollars a month or something like that. It's on the one of the upper sides. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is ridiculous. She was like, "Just get a hotel." <laughs> uh, and I'm like, but then it. And there's be no movie, charming. Java. Uh, all right. Our last Apple Apple Podcasts uh, review. Is from Susan R. Hill, who said, give us five stars. And it's titled Request. She says, if I gave you five stars, will you stop interrupting and talking over each other? 
No. It's, we could try. Oh, okay. It's no. Possible. Oh, I mean, I don't know. The answer is no. I, I mean, feel like uh, it varies. You could, say, you could say whatever you want if you leave five stars. That's always been That's my, my motto. So, you know what, Susan? I'm going to try my best. Did you uh, tell if- Robert Altman's cast members <laughs> to not talk over each other? Come on. Unless it was that one episode where uh, Patches and David had started having a side conversation uh, when I was trying to review a movie they hadn't seen. Otherwise, I'll do my best to not interrupt <laughs> you anybody. wanted to feel like a cocktail party where you're kind of moving in and yeah, out. Yeah, except your headphones are stuck in exactly the same place no matter what you do. <laughs> exactly. All right, and we have two emails. One to fitwr.podcast.gmail.com. One is a screenshot from the review that they left on the Apple Podcast Store in the UK. Thank you. This is how it should be done. So thank you, Alex from Liverpool, (laughs) who left this review in the UK uh, Apple's Podcast Store. Five stars, because there's no six-star option. If my remaining four brain cells started a podcast, it would probably sound like fighting in the war room. An instant listen with every new episode. Even when the films in question haven't dropped yet here in the UK, which is unfortunately often, but it's worth any potential spoilers. Thank you for listening, Alex. And I like that we're not the like young beginning brain cells. We're the last remaining. The last ones. Brain cells. That's not right. And it's we were once a functioning unit, and now we're just four (laughs) desperate personalities. Uh, all right, here we go. This one's from someone who signs her email as N. She says, and it's called Indigenous Representation in the Way of Water. Let's see if we're the protagonists or antagonists of this email. Here we go. <clears throat> hey, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I just listened to your Way of Water episode. I wanted to send a note about Indigenous representation in the movie. The Water Tribe is modeled after the Maori people who are Indigenous to New Zealand. I'm not sure if maybe I misheard or misunderstood but it seems like one of the hosts was implying that there wasn't, it wasn't barring from any specific indigenous cultures in this film. If I misheard, my apologies. That actually might have been me trying to inartfully make a point. A big hint to the fact was that the water tribes are based on the Maori people could be seen in the scene where the water tribes are preparing to go to war. The sons did an imitation of the haka, which is a ceremonial war and dance. Chris Curtis, who plays Tanawari, is also of Maori descent. And finally... The attachment to whales is significant in Maori culture. I'm attaching a link for you to look at, which is informational, and it's from the New Zealand government. I will forward this on uh, to my uh, podcast hosts. One one thing I want to flag here, this is an important issue for me, and I've been engaging with a lot of people about it, especially Polygon readers, very dear to their heart, this, this conversation that has not really happened. I thought it would actually be bigger. You thought it would happen more? things out of... Well, there's been th- some things that have gone viral, and a lot of what's gone viral about it was comments that James Cameron made back in 2009, 2010, around the first Avatar. Um, but obviously, to, to this uh, listener's point, like Maori is, is a clear reference in the the water tribe of of in Avatar. What I thought was interesting uh, at Polygon, we tried to kind of preempt this conversation by asking a lot of the craftspeople, like what. How did you deal with this idea of appropriation? How did you deal with cultural reference? And um, the Maori were obviously important, but one thing that they wanted to do, that they say they wanted to do at least, was try and reference lots of cultures from around Earth. So not just one reference that you would you would be able to see lots of different kind of cultural snowballing happening. 
uh, in the movie. And I, I would point people to that article we wrote because, you know, take it or leave it, that, that commentary, but it's straight from the, it's straight from Cameron and the craftspeople's mouths. So it was, it was interesting to see what they would say in response to something that didn't necessarily erupt, but was certainly easily decipherable when people saw the movie. Um, but yeah, I feel like yeah, that's familiar I, I with what they did in the first one too. Maybe not controversial to you. Yeah, uh, what, I feel like that's what they, they did in the first one too. Like there was a really wide range of like native culture influences for the um, Navi tribe. The yeah. uh, Omatakaya is that what the 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 forest Navi are called, as opposed to the Metkayina. That of sounds the... as right. As, I'm not checking uh, my notes, and I'm not going to try. <laughs> that on that ah, i meant to look uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're the time or two <laughs> yeah i think because of the press coverage around way of water i was if i was the one who said it which again i likely feel that i was trying to say it i was trying to briefly sum up what patches said is like they tried to make it uh uh assemblage uh james cameron always talks about like uh indigenous people to a planet that work in a correlation with that planet and are changed by biome he's always very distanced from it he's not saying yeah uh, and then i took a little bit of this and yeah. sprinkled in a little bit of that um but yeah. yeah and whereas the, the on wakanda uh, forever they talked really openly about basing it on aztec and um aztec and mayan cultures or just you know native mexico cultures for the um namor's people whose name i can't remember but thank you for the email. Nice. You can email us stuff like that at FIT dot, uh, FITWR dot podcast at gmail dot com. Uh, I love to be corrected with information and links in that particular tone. So bring it on. Yeah, uh, we'll try not to talk over each other, but it's not going to work. So <laughs> that's where you do. Please leave us reviews. Uh, otherwise, uh, I finally get to talk to Patches in detail about my Marvel Snap decks as we get closer to the app update that'll let us play each other. Yeah. I'm On to movies, though. Woefully unprepared. It's going to be fun. You'll be, you'll be fine. Well, I don't know if you guys heard about it, but the Oscar nominations came out this week. Uh, I talked about them a lot on a podcast called Little Gold Men that Patches has given me permission to plug in the middle of this podcast. The Oscar <laughs> nominations? What is that? Best Trash? I mean... Best um, Furry Monsters on Sesame Street? Wow. Best? I don't know. Hey. <laughs> Who's Will Smith going to slap uh, this year? <laughs> it's been a long year. Uh, been a long day. I feel very enmeshed in this, obviously. And, you know, I'm one of those people who's like, well, obviously everyone knew All Quiet on the Western Front was going to get nine nominations, uh, which is the amount that it did. But I want to know what you, the people, the plebeians here that I'm talking <laughs> to. Did people know that? I, this is what I'm saying. I don't think that's a real thing that real people knew. I think a lot of Oscar nerds were like, yeah, I think it's really going to overperform after it got 14 nominations at the BAFTAs. Um, but I do not expect normal people to know this. Matt Patches, what what were you surprised by at the Oscar nominations? To be fair, I'm a little no, more of course than you a are. I'm not person when it comes I'm to being this. sarcastic. I know okay. this. I, I was know. prepared for the all quiet on the Western front emergence. The bigger surprise was the Bardo 
comeback uh, in, in cinematography, I saw maybe, Dave, but then again... I saw Dave dipping into Oscar yeah. tweets about Bardo and Empire of Light. That was what, what got you to tweet, Dave. Uh, yeah, it was. Bardo is back. Best, best cinematography is by far the most questionable category of nominees in my mind. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, that's where I would be begin. I was shocked by uh, the inclusion of Bardo and the lack of, of, of Top Gun Maverick. Yeah. Top Gun slip in here i think i thought mm. obviously i picked top gun to win the top prize back in our foolish nomination uh game when when did we do that we were when trying we to remember it was after really like lead? it was after like the whale Whatever premiered the in woman venice, came out. it had to have been august or <laughs> no something. it was in september it was like after the the fablements had premiered after TIFF? yeah i think so okay yeah it might have been our tiff podcast actually where we foolishly made Long lead predictions. Dave uh, has helped, the way, says the, the person who's all of his the nominees update. still made it. Yeah, in. I was about to say, <laughs> the update here is that Katie is out and Dave is out because Cameron did not get an Avatar nomination, which is whack. Am I? Is anyone shocked? Uh, not shocked, I mean, but it's whack. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm also not shocked. I guess I think I'm more shocked that of like the directors, they couldn't just pick a woman and sidestep that entire thing. It doesn't uh, work But also that not way. having. Also, not having James. We'll, we'll have to on circle there. back to this topic of like, couldn't they pick a woman? Couldn't they get someone in to have? No, because it's like or, several hundred you know, people like, all filling out their own individual ballot. There's no yes, ability exactly. to, to cooperate on this kind of thing. Although, as we can talk about, Andrea Riseborough proves that there can be a level of cooperation if enough very famous people uh, help. Well, let's talk about this because if there's one macro takeaway from these Oscars in my just like watching discourse unfold on Twitter, it's your first mistake. Place, don't watch the discourse. Uh, <laughs> I know, but um, it's it's amazing how people still think, and uh, amazing how people who are in deeper than normal people like professionally talk about the Oscars. Professional, I'm using quotes here. You are professional. Katie. Oh, thank a you. A lot of there's a lot of posers I mean, out I don't there. Know. Um, who talk about the Oscars? It's, like the academy voting body is some sort of monolith that is anointing people and then reaching like conspiracy theory levels of how could they snub this person how could they box this person out what there's there's like this illuminati that's deciding not to diversify the oscars and and it starts taking the tone of like chemtrails are really well, vaccinating our people or something i'm just like do you know that the oscars aren't one giant like godlike figure anointing the nominees each year like there's a voting body yes. and there's friends and the friends vote for andrea riceborough yeah the andrea so what the andrea, so the acting branch is the biggest academy branch but it's also you know a couple hundred people who are all nominating so with nominations especially it's the individual branch is doing the nominating so when you see everything everywhere all at once get 11 nominations that's because the sound branch and the costume branch and the makeup branch all said, or maybe I don't think I got nominated for makeup. Anyway, all these individual branches said, yes, that is the movie that we liked. So that's how you can tell that it is liked in a vacuum in addition to getting a Best Picture nomination, which is everyone voting on it. So to get Andrea Riseborough in there, they only needed like 200 people to put her on their ballot and not put her at number one, just put her on there somewhere and presumably have a lot of them be like, well, Viola Davis is going to get nominated already. She already has an Oscar. I'm going to put Andrea Riseborough in here on, on here instead because my friends told me to. It's not a conspiracy. Oscar campaigns work this and way. And some people may have put Viola Davis. Oh, like, let's be clear. Plenty of people put all Viola of these Davis or Daniel Deadwire. The yeah, got voted. Of course, for. they got voted yeah, for. Exactly. Um, and like I think this is how campaigns work in a lot of ways. It's, there's luncheons and panels and screenings hosted by all of these people. Like there's 
campaigning in all kinds of ways that are usually invisible to us in this clubby way is the fact that we can see them all tweeting and tweeting the exact same phrase about to Leslie that makes it all seem suspicious. And I think the fact that it happened at the expense of two black actresses getting Best Actress nominations is a bad look. I think, but at the expense of is is the rhetoric of that. I think is a mistake. You are you are helping establish uh, okay. this conspiratorial narrative to no. say that no. two black There's actors a... have been excluded. No, but it happened. Like, Katie, was... Katie just just explained how you could game the system. It can still be so at the expense of them, like... even if individual voters didn't say, "Hey, take it, take that, Viola Davis. I'm kicking you out." Right, of here. right. Uh, the the branch can still be wrong. Like you can't live in a world where, well, there wasn't going to be a female di- director because that's not how it works. But also live in a world where like a hundred can't be wrong. Can- Let's be clear here: they can't be wrong because there is no right. That's what I'm really getting at. Oh, Wait, this is no, best for these are the five people. What? This- <laughs> there's no correct well, answer there's, to there's voting what of the Oscars. The Oscars the- can't get itself but wrong. But there's what you think is the correct answer, and then there's what, like, in 20 years, you look back, you're like, oh boy, that was the bad choice. There's plenty of like it's the people wrong. we wish we got to see be not. I, look, yeah. I, I was infuriated, infuriated that the Woman King was completely shut it out. Sucks. Like, it totally sucks. Not a costume yes. nomination. Not a Gina nomination. Like, I, I'm frustrated, but I'm not thinking that it's some sort of I don't feel like the people who voted the movies that got in boxed them out necessarily I'm just I'm no, disappointed but I think but it I'm is like, worth looking at the overall voting body and being like all right when you put down your ballot the overall why are voting these body is so international yes but when you look at your ballot and you say okay what do I think is worthy of a nomination uh and that so many of them are like ah not the woman king like that's not any one person's problem, but that is an overall thought process of what movies are Oscar worthy and what movies rise to that attention level and which ones aren't. But I think it's worth calling out. But is yeah. it the, the ballot? Is it like the Woman King wasn't worthy or was it actually on many ballots in a place that we wouldn't ever see? It just wasn't enough. So many people's number ones got it. But it's right? okay. Statistically, it's irrelevant. If it gets the nomination, then we get to be like, oh, you recognize this with the nomination. And if it doesn't, it's been dramatically and statistically irrelevant, so we can't blame a single person. Seems like a great system to me. And I'm not going to say there isn't a conspiracy theory, because if there is something <laughs> that holds up the capability of having a conspiracy theory, it's fucking Hollywood giving Hollywood its own accolades. Yeah. I'm sure somewhere, like 20 years from now, there will be some sort of weird conspiracy. We just won't care. We won't care about it. It's not important. It's not like a governmental conspiracy where it's killing well, people. All conspiracy, all conspiracy. If you fuel conspiracy well, theory we talk, started you with open JFK people up to other shit. Now with- <laughs> no, this is the thing this about is a bad brain way of thinking. This is bad. You're not going to make me. You're not going to make me feel guilty about watching the X Files, and that's ultimately where this conversation ends. <laughs> There's this a is certain- a coast to coast AM Oscar talk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now on to our water systems. Um, okay, um, wait, I had a. This is the thing I wanted to bring to you guys. I don't know how long we want to talk about the Oscars. So point. if you have read, if you have read Let's about go. Michelle Yeoh, um, you may have seen the phrase that she's the first openly Asian actress to be nominated for Best Actress, which is a <laughs> weird phrase. But the reason that I it saw is weird, variety was really had, parading this so around. The re- yeah. but so the reason it's weird is because Merle Brown was an actress nominated in the 30s. Um, she had Asian heritage. I think her mother was Sri Lankan. Uh, that she hit it. She passes white basically her entire career in Hollywood and that only came out after the fact. Um, so I think that you can't erase Merle Oberon and her history from that stat. So what do you say instead of openly Asian though? It is such a strange thing and it gets into this weirdness about like 
defining like what is Asian because Asia is a massive country made up of many massive continent made up of many different countries. Uh, yeah, Asia is a continent. Turns you're out you're canceled. Um, anyway, it's just it's a strange thing and it's an interesting stat. And when you get into old Hollywood, I mean, especially when you start talking about like queer actors, it's a whole separate can of worms. Um, anyway, I wonder if any of you had thoughts on what is a cleaner way to explain. So the frustration this. here is is trivia like. It's just a way just to like, like Michelle Yao. Awesome. Well, no, but, but I, th- I think that I mean, uh, what are Oscars if not like trivia and stats across decades? That's like the, tri- the value of I, having I an agree. award that's I, been around for almost a hundred years is being able to fun. care Best Actress of nineteen thirty two and Best Actress of twenty twenty three. Um, and but you don't want to take away from Michelle Yeoh's accomplishment because she's like the first actress to have any start in an Asian film industry. Like there's all kinds of firsts attached to her name. Um, so yeah, I mean it's gonna be. An asterisk, basically, but as you're trying to write a sentence that doesn't sound like a robot wrote it, I have not figured out a good solution. That's all. I, I, yeah, I don't know how to. I mean, she's Malaysian, right? Yeah, like, she's the first Malaysian actress to be nominated for Best Actress. I like, think that's, that's the way to go. Yeah, like go that more specific and dispel. As, but that doesn't get at the enormity of the significance. It doesn't, but, but neither does first openly we be Asian going more either. in an international. I mean, this is the like thing that people always people you know. There's so many people out there who use African as like a word they just throw around. It's like that is not a country. Like. Talk about where people are really from, or like Asian. Talk about where people are sure. really from. Like, she's Malaysian. So talk about yeah. her being from Malaysia. Yeah. And remind people that Malaysia is a thing. But I like, think ignorant American people <laughs> remind know people. different countries. But I think you could read that and think, if like, you're oh, going well, Japanese Gaga for Jakarta. have been nominated, or like South <laughs> Korean. It's like, no, the, extent, the, the lack of Asian faces at all in that category is what's so glaring and what Michelle Yeoh is changing here. Um, but it's hard to get at. But I think the context is interesting yeah. and worthwhile. And now more people know about Merle Oberon and her really fascinating story. So maybe it's all for good. Yeah, no, say, I think this is, is one of those cases. Really Absolutely. It's a good thing. Context is super Connect important. Did you know that it's the first Unlike, Best say, Actor lineup of all first-time nominees since the 60s? No, since the 30s, excuse me. And it's the, oh, no. the most... I did know that there Alan was like... Farrell never nominated. Never nominated. That- all five Best Actor nominees are first timers, and it's there's 16 first time asking acting nominees this year, and that is the most since the 60s. It's cool. I mean, that makes me what feel good about right? the state of the industry. I know, yeah, right? What, what happened? It's a, <laughs> what, this what is did the we thing. do? I, uh, like, I'm mad about the Woman King, and I'm mad about Daniel Deadweiler getting left out and various other things, but it's a good list of nominees. I think it's a good range of movies. It is. It there's is. a lot of good stuff in there. There's a lot of good big stuff and it good feels small like stuff. Movies are back. You know, now more than ever. And and to your point, like maybe we have new movie stars. It's so funny. I, I was talking to a colleague of mine who's like, it seems like Hollywood's really anointing Paul Mescal as a new A-lister. And I'm like, buddy, I don't think Hollywood gets to decide who's an A-lister just because Paul Mescal is going to star in a gladiator. Right. Sequel, <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> uh, I don't think he automatically opens a movie now that he has an Oscar nomination. And no one on Earth knows who Paul Mescal is except like 18 of us. So... Um, we'll, we'll see if Paul Mescal is an A-lister, but at least people are like, I don't think there's movie stars anymore. I, we've talked about this on the podcast, yeah. but there's definitely great actors. There's definitely people coming up and who are going to be names and there's a new generation. And well, and God, very I mean, relevantly for Paul Mescal and like lots of other people, there are people whose names can help get movies made. And I think I would imagine he helped get After Sun made because of the fame he had from normal people. And that ability is only going to increase with this true. nomination. And that's yeah, a huge certain... benefit of this nomination. He can open a micro budget movie and Austin Butler can open. I think he is kind of growing into yeah. get butts in the seats. I mean, I think we talked during when Elvis came out. 
I saw Elvis in a normal movie theater full of of young women mm-hmm. who were just like, show me the butler. Well, you remember he's in Dune. <laughs> and then they played Lee Daniels the butler. And I said, no, you made a mistake. Do you, <laughs> want, to, you want to do a crazy thing that keeps going out of my brain? This is how damaged it is. So Dan, Dan Quan and Daniel Schreiner got nominated for everything everywhere all at once. So Daniels got a nomination, but not Lee Daniels, who has also been not nominated for best director. So when you try to think about Daniels nominated for best director, you have to be clear about whether you mean one person it's or two. not just... <laughs> The, the first Daniels, Daniels to, to possibly win. <laughs> the the, the first Daniels who are two people to be dominated for best director. <laughs> um, Katie, uh, yeah, you mentioned at the top of the show that like you're you're in deep, but did something surprise you on this list? Was there something? Oh, Andrew Risebro. Didn't feel like there definitely was surprised me. Too much. Oh, uh, we didn't mention that she's in a film called Two Leslie. Leslie which Has, it, have, have any of us yes, seen that? Maybe we she's should good at all it. watch she's it. She's good at it. I've watched okay. it. She's good in it. It's a perfectly fine little movie. No, Edward Norton calls it the performance of. A you life. know who's good in it is Mark Maron. He's like the like love interest. Stop. He's really good. No. He's good in it. Don't. All right, now you have to watch to Not Leslie. Don't be a don't be a right. dick about it. <laughs> a Marin hater. Oh, <laughs> uh, the Batman did well. It got two nominations for sound and makeup and hairstyling. I'm glad Robert Pattinson. Yeah, the Penguin uh, got nominated. Joker got nominated. Um, Riddler got snubbed. <laughs> got snubbed. <laughs> the Fableman's really lost cred, don't you think? Like the Fableman's is not going to the. I think Steven Spielberg going to win it best didn't director. Have the traction. You it do did have attraction that it was it was uh, we expected it to have. I expected it to have. I think the Fablemans did fine. Katie, I'm, I'm astonished. Uh, I think yes, yeah, Steve Spielberg's gonna win Best Director. This is not the Daniels to clean no, up. No, this, this is, is not everything movie. everywhere all at once going everything everywhere. It would be all the, to the finish I line. Mean, I mean, so Closure won wins for no. Yeah, but it got so many more like, nominations. It did, but I still think Steven Spielberg wins. I think he's got a compelling his, presence in this race. He made the movie about his life. He has fewer okay. Oscars than he should have. Um, I'm going to die on that hill. Is the thing that's weird is that Spielberg <laughs> has only won Best Picture like once. He's only won. He only has won Best Picture once. He's not going to win it this time. But um, give him a third Best Director statue. Who deserves it more? I mean, who deserves it more? I'm not. I'm not. Who sure. deserves to have I three mean, best director statues more? Not like of these five. Like there's many. Like all. all I five. want Todd Field to win. I didn't expect Todd Field in Tar this lineup overperformed. of directors. You want to talk about surprises? Like Tar got a best editing nomination and a best cinematography nomination, which not that many editing. people were. Yeah, great everything. Um, but it just wasn't widely predicted. Everything. Um, so that was great. Speaking of Mark Maron, I listened to Todd Field's Maron interview, and I'm on. I'm all in on Todd Field. Let's go. Tar. 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 Tar 2. Tar rules. Tar 2. R where we get RRR guys and Tar in the same movie. Can I give you, can I read With the accents over the A and the second R. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to read a good, dumb Tar tweet about Oscars. Yeah, go for it. Lydia Tar belittled a pangender BIPOC student. She groomed young women. One of them committed suicide. This morning, she got multiple Oscar nominations. Please tell me again how cancel culture is real. All Tar tweets are good. All tweets. Tar the t- only reason Twitter should exist. I don't, I don't know why they're not bad yet, but they're not. They're all good. You're they're completely all good. correct. They're all good. Now, here's an yeah, interesting thing. I- Let me ask you this. Uh... I saw a lot of people confused why Glass Onion was nominated for adapted screenplay. Oh, if you're in deep, you know you know the answer. It's a sequel. Uh, that That's is easy. all sequels are nominated for 
Yeah, that's Top why Gun Top Gun Maverick. Also got adapted screenplay. What the fuck? Okay, all right. You want to go oh, in no, deep? Oh, no, that makes sense to me. You want to go deep? So, okay, so there's awards called the USC Scripter Awards, which come out like a week before Oscar nominations or whatever. And they're like, uh, you know, what are the writers into? But the rule is that they have to be based on a written work. So they're usually adaptations of books or something like that. So not a sequel. It doesn't count. So Glass Onion, not eligible for the USC Scripters. But Top Gun Maverick was because Top Gun, the original, was based on a magazine on article. Book. So it qualified oh. for these weird ass awards. <laughs> so all the Fast and the Furious movies would also qualify. <laughs> when, the and, was and, based on a and we'll win article. all of them, obviously. Oh my God. Uh, so anyway, that was a fun fact. I thought that was a, I, I feel great about that nomination. You, think- you know what didn't get nominated because of it? Uh, we'll get to this. The Whale. It kicked The Whale out of adapted screenplay. The Whale, the whale seems like it's limping. It didn't get a best picture. It's a uh, beach. It's, it's Brendan Fraser's thing. <laughs> That's your joke, not mine. Uh, we'll talk about the whale later in this uh, later in this podcast. Yeah. I'm very excited to talk about it. Wait, but my question okay. here for adapted screenplay was: Do you think it's bad that that sequels get lumped into adapted screenplay? I feel like this can become more a thing as time goes on. I don't know uh, why. Glass Onion really has nothing to do with nine. It's not like it's not eligible. Benoit Blanc. It's not like it's not eligible. Like why, why not just put it in adapted? I'm not sure. Don't, it's, don't create it's problems when they new. don't exist. I mean, he's not building it. He doesn't have source material. Yeah, his source material is his first movie in Benoit Blanc. That's more like that a reason I would or would not vote for it and less of a reason I would or would not nominate it. That makes any sort of sense, Patches. It, it does not. But uh, <laughs> like, like Top Gun <laughs> Maverick is a good movie because of how tight its overall structure is without adapting from like a novel or anything so it could be an original or adapted for me that's fine but if it's an original i'm gonna be like is the best story we could tell top gun maverick and that's probably gonna be i will just say the fableman has more source material than glass onion (laughs) and the fableman is an original screen that's in that's insane that's insane that is not an insane take that is a great take (laughs) he's just ripping from his own life Oh my god. You got the Are guy in the, the room. Oscars? He just I mean, tells I, you what happens talk, and you write it down. I can literally <laughs> do this all day. We're done with the Oscars have, I've been doing this now. All, I've been doing this all day. Uh, just let me know when you want to hear about uh, an ostrich told me the world would end. <laughs> an ostrich told me the world would end. Have you watched fake. it? No, I want to. Though. I always watch the shorts. Um, they always put them up on like Apple to rent and like you can get them as a package. So I always watch them in like February whenever that happens. The uh, well, I, I, 95th Animal Academy Award else. nominations. Yes, we talked about them. We will be talking about them much more, I'm sure. And then, you know, there'll be a ceremony. We'll talk about that. Uh, in March. Yeah. In March. In, in March. Patches, in the pandemic year, the Oscars were in late April. Do not complain. <laughs> I know. That almost yeah, killed here's, me. Uh, here's the important thing for those of you that were listening and maybe haven't listened uh, all way back last year. Here's where our pool stands. <laughs> David picked Fablements for Best Picture, Steven Spielberg for Best Director, Brendan Fraser for Best Actor, and Kate Blanchett for Actress. All those things received nominations. Hatches picked Top Gun Maverick, Steven Spielberg, Brendan Fraser, and Michelle Yeoh. All those things got my nominations. They still have a possible four out of four. Katie and I both got knocked down to two. Katie's uh, pick for Best Picture, Babylon, and Director Sarah Pauly. They did not get nominated. But Colin Farrell's in for actor, Kate Blanchett's in for actress, and myself picked everything everywhere all at once for best picture. 
James Cameron for director who did not get nominated, Austin Butler for actor who did, and Viola Davis for actress who did not. Who's going to win? Find out later this year, fighting in the war room. My prediction is David is going to win. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, I think David is, but I think David's going to get two. He's going to get three. He could get three. I don't think he's he's not going to get four. Thank God. (laughs) I still have a fighting (laughs) chance with Colin and Kate, all right? What? Hear what I say. We are the business today. Fuck shit is finished today. All T and J. Need a new PB and J. We dropped the classic today. We did a tablet of acid today. The joints with the matches and ashes away. We dash away. Donna and Dixon, the pistol is blasting away. Doctors of death. Filling our patients of breath. We ought to pay you the trust. On our Oscars trivia episode, this movie was described to me as not just a Shrek sequel. Uh, when I talked about how much I hated the fact <laughs> that Shrek is the first Best Animated Picture Oscar ever awarded. I, we're talking about Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. It scored an Oscar nomination for Best Animated Film, building off of what I've, I've heard everybody who's seen this movie has actually liked it. I have not seen it, but my co-hosts have. So here's my question, guys. Why do you think I should see Puss in Boots, The Last Wish? Uh, Because I would like for you to explain to me why the animation looks so good, because I don't have the language for it. Uh, It is not like an ugly-ass CGI Shrek movie. I mean, it it is in some parts, but it has really inventive action that kind of reminds me more of Spider-Verse, where, like, frames will jump and, like, the the, uh, backgrounds will get kind of painterly, kind of like Mitchells versus the Machines. Like, it it goes in unexpected directions in the action sequences. It's kind of impressionistic and inventive in a way that you do not associate with these movies at all. Patches, do you have better language for this? Yeah, I mean, you're right on the money. Comparing it to Spider-Verse, it's definitely the same um, in the way that oh, it oh. animates on the... It's on, not nearly on the, on the as, uh, as over-the-top as Spider-Verse. No, but the one thing that it does, it's weirdly comparable to Avatar The Way of Water in the way if you saw that film in high frame rate, not all the scenes are actually in high frame rate. It's kind uh-huh. of ebbing and flowing, if you will, into these different visuals and, and different frame rates. And, the, and Puss in Boots actually does this with the animation. Now, Dave, was Spider-Verse animating on the twos? Am I using my terminology correct there? Is Depends the which character you're talking about. But yes, um, oh. Miles starts on the threes and evolves into the twos where Peter Parker, who is Spider-Man is animated more smoothly. So it's part of his journey. Oh, so on the twos is the smooth, and on the threes is the kind of jagged... Yeah, oh, yeah. The anime gotcha, gotcha. jag. So I'm actually, yeah, I'm worth, I guess we're talking more about the threes, where, uh, like, when it goes, when Puss in Boots goes into action mode, it is going into kind of the Spider-Verse yeah. mode, and it's super expressionistic and, and jagged like that. Um, but mm. I think, Eve, and the difference between Puss in Boots Shrek, or like the original Puss in Boots movie, which I don't think I'll show my children. I don't think I've ever seen it. Must watch. um, Is that even when it's typically animated and in the more dialogue driven scenes, the low key stuff, it still has this kind of like painterly wash. It looks dabbed on. A lot of the backgrounds feel like paintings, and the character models are not just like photo real Pixar, you know, Toy Story 4 looks exactly like real life um it is still impressionistic it still has this kind of like painterly filter and it just gives this great quality it feels more storybook mm-hmm. which uh puss in boots uh, also thank god it's not this referential muck of 
fairy tale jokes and pop culture. There's a lot of fairy tale jokes well. in there, though. I mean, you've got like there's fairy tale. Go ahead. There's fairy tale like remixing, but I don't think there's like goofball Shrek style fairy tale jokes. Yeah. Um. I mean, we have Jack Horner as a as a bad guy in this, and Goldilocks of the Three Bears. They're they're main characters, but it's still kind of like an adventure in a fairy tale world. It feels more like uh prince's bride mm. is the way mm. that it's echoing fairy tales rather than shrek um and, and and it's also dark like my daughter who is now five was is into it but this is a movie where puss in boots has expired like spent his eight of his nine lives and is realizing he has one left and is now being haunted by the manifestation of death in the form of a scythe wielding wolf who oh. is coming to him in like a Western bar as he's drinking milk and being like, I want to kill you. Um, <laughs> I fought one of those in Elden Ring. It's a little terrifying uh, in a good way for kids and, and in a way, an engaging way for parents. There's a great sequence where we see how Puss lost all his lives. Yeah, that's funny. Um, which is just spectacularly animated. So funny. Uh, there's just like, this, the movie is bursting with ideas and jokes and, and visual humor. Um, and Mulaney does the voice of Jack Horner is, is whipping out the wazoo. If you like Big Mouth, you'll like what Mulaney is doing. I guess if you like Spider-Ham, they ported him in over. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's just a really fun movie. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Um, certainly will never show my kids the Shrek show. Uh, Harvey Guillen is a perito, the dog sidekick, who is oh, yeah. like cute and eager to be so Puss's friend. Um, you know, you I mean, you describe all the beats of these kids' movies and you're like, oh, that could be done really badly or could be done really good. Like, it hits a lot of the same stuff that you might think is familiar, but just does it well. It, like, it's clever in all of these ways that you're right. Like, the Shrek movies are always just like, look, here's this thing that you know, and Puss in Boots really takes the effort to make it funny and make it grounded in character and to surprise you consistently. And even in, like, in the end, the, the whole premise of the movie is that they're chasing this, this fallen star that's going to give him the wish. He'll be able to get his lives back. And I don't think I'm spoiling too much, but, like, it's not, it doesn't go where you think it will go. The characters make real choices. Yeah. It's more interesting than it should be. Uh, and Antonio Banderas as Puss and... Thelma Hayek as Kitty Softballs <laughs> have like an emotional <laughs> conclusion in the movie. Yeah. It's just it's it's a movie. It's a real movie. Yeah. Uh, what Florence Pugh so, is Goldilocks and Olivia Coleman is uh, Mama Bear. Just solid. Just <laughs> and there's some heavy shit going uh -huh. down there too. It's kind of intense. So I haven't seen the Sea Beast yet either. So that's a question mark. But you have something like Turning Red, which was you know bright, 3D animated. Uh, a whole bunch of fun about, you know, uh, growing up and uh, living with your family. And then you have Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, Marcel Lucello's Shoes On, which I think are great animated movies, but are also similarly about death. Mm -hmm. So where on that, uh, like, spectrum does Puss in Boots's serious side fall? I would say less serious than Probably Marcel or Pinocchio. Yeah, yeah, definitely more in the middle of all of these uh, movies. What's the fifth? Oh, Turning Red. Yeah, Turning um, Red. Yeah, probably comparable with Turning Red. Sea mm. Beast also is is mature, but not. I haven't seen. It's like How is to Train Beast Your good? Dragon, essentially. Yeah, it's good. I mean, we had fun watching it at home. The only place you could see it because it's on Netflix. Um, but it's How to Train Your Dragon with big sea monsters. We like How to Train Your Dragon in this house. And yeah. 
Yeah. All right. All right. I Another want, good year for anime. I want to hear film. Dave talk about Puss in Boots. So go go see it. I mean, it's only in theaters, so you know. Well, I'll get Do to what it, you Katie. Can. There's an infinity <laughs> pool coming out this weekend. <laughs> yes, there is. The Whale is a movie that is now out in American theaters. Uh, I learned from watching uh, Brandon Fraser introduce a uh, UK screening of The Mummy on YouTube this weekend that it hasn't, it doesn't come out till February uh, in the UK. So sorry to our listener who uh, wrote in. We're going to be talking about The Whale. It's Darren Aronofsky's new film based on a play of how uh, Patches set up The Whale for our listeners. Oh, okay. As you said, yeah, it's based on a Samuel D. Hunter play that I have not seen, but in reading about it, it seems like it's been staged many times. I don't know if it's a popular play, but it is it not was, obscure It was play. workshopped in Denver, oh. so he was actually at my screening of The Whale when oh. I saw the, oh, cool. the playwright. Um, but yeah, this, this movie is fairly contained inside the home of Charlie, who uh, is... He's an English professor. I think he's kind of like zooming in essentially to his English class, but he is 600 pounds. So he does not leave home and he barely leaves his couch. Um, he's in a very bad state when we meet him. He is suffering from, I think they like congestive heart failure. Yeah. And probably going to die soon. His best bud is played by Hong Chow. She got nominated for an Oscar. She right did. Yeah. Day, as we talk about this. Um, She's Liz, and she's a nurse, and she kind of takes care of him and begs him to take care of himself, which he is just not in condition to do. Um, and his life is collapsing inward, and a lot of life in a true like we're putting on a play kind of way. All of where the people keep walking in and out of his once. house. <laughs> yeah, so Sadie Sink plays his daughter, like a strange daughter who just walks in at the right moment, um, being like, "You're a fucking asshole for walking out." The thing with Charlie is he was married and had a kid, but then he met a man and fell in love and went away, and that man ended up dying, and this might have caused him to trip and fall into this this kind of addiction, I would say, of, of eating and, become, and became 600 pounds and got him where he is today. Um, so there's a lot of spiraling in this movie. I would say it is a capital T tragedy. It is intense. <laughs> it's a Darren Aronofsky movie. Let's make no mistake about it. Yeah. If you like getting your head dunked in a toilet, this is the movie for you. And I gotta say, guys, I gotta say, this movie did not get... Well, this movie is strange. Like, it won at Venice, I'm pretty sure, at least Frazier did. No, he it, lost it, to Colin it was, Farrell. It was well-received at Venice, though. Did he? Okay, it was well-received. Standing O's at, at festivals. And then reviews started to come out of Toronto, like, annihilating this movie. I'll, I'll just say Polygon wrote a particularly, like, this movie is bad. This movie is mean. This movie is uh, an attack on overweight people. Um, yeah, intense out there. But I got to say, like, I, I like Darren Aronofsky movies. I like getting my head dunked in the toilet once in a <laughs> while. And this did it for me. Like, I actually found Frasier to be a pretty deliver a really poignant performance uh it did not tip over for me 
mostly because he's the he brings so much heart he brings so much sadness and and challenging material here i do think it's heavy-handed at times there are scenes where charlie is like losing control and eating fried chicken and slobbering all over himself and it is hard to watch and it's heavy-handed that way there's some dumb jokes in it too not even dumb jokes it's just like it's very much like requiem of a dream except instead of heroin it's food and it's hard yeah. sort of but it doesn't think... have any of the artistic flourish of requiem for a dream no because I... it is suffocatingly stuck in into... one apartment which is yeah. like part of part of the movie i liked i like being trapped with charlie charlie is not an acerbic character who i mind being trapped with I uh, think the miscalculation in this movie and things that sort of led to things uh, like the Polygon Review, which I read before I saw uh, The Whale, just to sort of see what how morally complicit I was going to be to see a movie for <laughs> free. Uh, but uh, I ended up thinking that the movie, especially the score, um, is so unsubtle. And there are certain parts in the movie where the movie is allowed to be unsubtle, that those are the things that really stuck out to me as ringing false, because as Patches said, uh, and I'm sure a lot of people agree, uh, some great performances all around in this movie uh, that do a lot, I think, to paper. I, they're great performances in the way that I'm empathizing with them. I'm rooting for all the characters to win, even if they're at odds. And I am aware that these choices that I'm seeing being made on screen have real consequences for people. I think all oh, that's great. And then the movie's like, now he's going to binge eat two pizzas at once and the score is going to make sure you know that this is bad for him. And I'm like, I don't know, man. I feel like the filmmaking really is at some places uh, underestimating how much the performances allow the audience to get the entirety of this movie. I, it still reads very much as uh, Aronofsky's still working through his uh, Christianity, just uh, a different aspect of it, because not only is there a lot of frank discussion of religious uh, guilt and how religions insert themselves into communities, really not understanding those communities, uh, but Charlie is there so other people can enter his apartment and talk about how bad their life is. And you're sitting there watching them doing that, and you're believing it. And maybe the downside of the whale is that so there was several times in this movie, I'm like, just leave this guy alone. Like, if you just leave and this guy... And he's begging them to, though. I mean, when you're, yeah. you're talking about the Ty Simpkins character who is literally playing a, a Christian missionary, kind of. There's more to his story that I won't spoil, but he, I, I, at the end of the day, he's still spouting kind of biblical text and trying to save Charlie, and a lot of the time, Charlie's like, please let me go. And even the people saving him are asking, like, he's telling them to let him, let the, let him go. Um, and that's why I was, I was kind of surprised that a lot of reactions to the film had to do with, like, oh, it's really, we're really supposed to be gawking at Charlie, or that it's a judgment against Charlie and, and obese people, when I thought, like, all these people think they know him and, and don't. And people can't look past him and understand the dimension to him. You don't think that there's so a gawking really quality to how this movie is made? Where you're watching him take a shower I, or like failing to be able to get up off the couch and then 
the kind of triumphant moment of the movie is when he manages to stand up and like relieve himself of this burden of a body that he's in? I don't think it's gawking. I think the experience of being 600 pounds is being put on screen. And I do not think it is incredibly challenging. No, I'm, I'm sure. These 600 pounds. I'm sure that it is. But I think the idea of like putting someone in a fat suit so that you can gawk at what you imagine a 600 pound person would be like. Why is it gawking is my question. What is gawking about? This? Like, because you're, not, you're, you're, you're not there to laugh at him. No, but you were presented being like, can you believe that a human being could look in this way? I mean, gawking in the same way that you gawk at like the Navi, I guess you're creating yeah, something. That's where, that's... But it's not a fictional character. There are people who live like this all of the time and who are worthy of dignity in a way that like Charlie assumes. And that's it, the point. But Charlie assumes that he's not worthy of dignity. And the movie operates from a point of being like, well, you don't think this person is going to be worth anything. But let me let us show you that there's a real person underneath there. And I think a movie that actually wanted to be empathetic would not start from this point of view of being like would you believe that a really fat person can actually be the movie a good doesn't person start with there. that's what i don't understand that... how people see it this way i don't understand how people see this movie and be like can you believe this person lives this way when it is actually saying people live with this condition people have an addiction to food people become 600 pounds this is what it's like like you would never see this you would never be able to understand what their life is life. If you want to do it that, make hard. a documentary it about it. Don't like fictionalize someone. Why? Like, because if you want to like show... Why do we make anything fiction versus documentary? Because then you're just like taking it and being like, well, first of all, can you believe how this handsome like or like formerly handsome actor of the 90s can you believe that he's back and he's transformed himself into this you like, are horrifying bringing way looking, too much narrative to this movie i think that's exactly the narrative and i think you cast someone like brendan fraser because there's a narrative you can put on something like that you could find an unknown actor i mean i'm not even saying that you have to like cast someone who is 600 pounds to play this role but i think the transformation aspect is how you sell this movie it's why the whale is making money at the box office you can't you can't do you think you could cast someone who's 600 pounds in this movie? Maybe. I don't know. Would someone who's 600 pounds do this movie? Maybe not. I think you're being too kind to it, saying that the only bad parts are where he's binge eating because Samantha Morton's terrible in this movie and she's not a bad actress, um, but she shows well, I up. I will say Sadie Sink is not Sadie terribly Sadie Sink good. is terrible in this movie. Everyone, I don't care for Ty her. Simpkins is fine, I guess, but his character never doesn't like, really make like any Samantha sense. You don't like Morton in this movie? Uh, Samantha Morton's like terrible. She shows up as this character who's like... Every wife, the calibration wife. of all of her lines and all of their conversations are so off and jarring. She doesn't feel like a real person at all. Neither does Sadie Sink, which is why it's a miracle that Hong Chao does. Like she lands all of her right. scenes mm. in such an incredibly compelling way. I think Brendan Fraser is good in it, but also the character Charlie makes no sense because he like ends in his big moment being like, people are amazing. You can't imagine how great humanity can be but also he's deliberately killing himself and not just with eating just like refusing to go to the hospital he's like suicidal but spouting off platitudes about like the worthiness of humanity it doesn't make any sense and the performance doesn't tie he that together very conflicted to me Does like, he? I don't he's think very committed I don't to think dying i feel like you're you want something simple i don't understand i like, think the movie is really simple i think it's okay for him to be conflicted but i think that his words and his actions do not match up, and I don't. And the movie does not present it in a way that he is supposed to be. That that is supposed to be a conflict. He's supposed to be like an inspirational figure, even as he is on his way, deliberately ready to leave. Uh, this he's supposed to be a sacrificial figure. Everything that you're talking about, Katie, I think exists. But the reason you don't cast an actual 600 pound person is because then it's gawking. Yes. Like, but at least what, what, then you give the, that person agency like it's the it's idea not. Of you don't give christ of, a, you so don't much, give christ so agency much, 
Dave, Dave is an expert here because Dave has worked in reality television. And if you know anything about reality television is if you made a reality television show about a 600 pound person, you would be gawking at them. The whole point is like, look at them do this. Look at them do that. Look at do th them do this. But a lot of what Charlie's story is, is like attempting to navigate his emotional life as much as his like physical day to day life. Uh, it, all of it is challenging because of all of the totality of his life. He, he's not just a tragic figure because he's 600 pounds. He's tragic because he's lost his partner. He's tragic because he's lost his daughter and his first failed marriage. And he is destroying the only friendship that he has. There's so much going on that is beyond his weight. But the fact that he is 600 pounds creates like unfathomable hurdles for him to correct everything else in his life. I, I just, the idea that it's gawking feels... It's, it feels like this meta narrative. Then why does it present it as this moment where like he finally reveals himself on Zoom camera to his students and like universally everyone's just like, oh my God, I cannot believe that's what he looked well, that's like. That's because I think people would do that. I mean, is I, the idea, I, I was thinking about the notion of a fat scene, person cause... existing supposed to be so universally seen as unbelievable that like we just assume that that's how like well, remember, it's okay that Charlie assumes it, but the movie accepts that assumption. Himself. I know that. But like. Yeah. I don't like if you like seeing your like fat professor's face, I don't think it's to be just a cause for universal revolsion. But the the movie is not the participants. But of I the think Zoom the movie the also like, accepts that as a base level. Like he's ashamed to go out in public. I mean, we all get why he's ashamed to go out in public. Like I don't think there's any effort to say, like, well, Charlie, like you're kind of like overdoing this in your head. Like you can participate in society if you choose to, and he's not choosing to because of his hangups around this. I think his Someone like having hangups around their body. I mean, he gets at some of that about the idea that he was always a bigger person and then he ate in this way that has made him physically debilitated. Yeah. Like, that's an interesting angle to explore. But I think it just gets to this place being like, well, he can no longer function in society because of his fat body. And that's where we're starting from. I mean, that is where we're starting from because it's a tragedy. Yeah, I just think it's like in an industry where like fat people are basically never depicted on screen, the fact that like this is going to be the point we're going out to, it just does not feel necessary or worthy of the platform that it has, the way that it's taken the attitude toward people with fat bodies. I guess, but should we never make movies about this addiction that people have and this strife that they experience? Should it then not let be fat ever people be in on it. screen? Let them tell their what story or let the fat person make a movie. Like, I think there's a lot of... The whole point of this is that a 600-pound person can... It's going to die from congestive heart failure. I think How could this person be in a movie? I think you can make movies about fat people and their struggles and about their inner lives that actually let them tell that story as opposed to making up something that a bunch of other people, a bunch of able-bodied people are making about someone who's disabled and making assumptions about what that inner life would be like. I don't know if it's making, I don't know if it's making things up because didn't, didn't Frazier do a lot of like consulting with obesity groups sure i mean it's it's incredibly complex issue them. like i'm not saying that you like like yeah. fat suits are a whole separate thing and i think there's a lot of nuance in that conversation too i just like i don't feel like the yeah. whale had anything interesting to say about what it is like to live in a larger body uh i think there's a ton of interesting conversations about that but like making that character be the sacrificial figure like what dave was saying i think is a really rote way to a approach it and i don't think any of the drama that you're mentioning yeah. that goes on around it makes that character feel more fleshed out or worth spending time with to me i will say yeah. that this did not feel like norbit to me no of course uh, not it's, <laughs> a, it's a very it's I don't not think it's that shallow no how, obviously no of course not like we've come very far in the way that we're willing to treat fat people on screen and we can be grateful for that but that doesn't mean i like the whale i think it like also builds to an ending with uh the 
piece of writing that he's like fucking obsessed with that ultimately works like as a movie more than it works as like a logic thing for me when i got out of this movie i mentioned that the director was there or the writer of the play was there mm-hmm. he was gonna do a q a as soon as the credits started rolling i was like i get it i do not want to hear this q a <laughs> and i left <laughs> Uh, because I think that a lot of what Katie's saying is absolutely correct, and the reality is this was a play that was put on uh, also by not obese people, written by a not uh, morbidly obese person, and everyone was fine with it until it gets the Aronofsky treatment, and he's not subtle with anything that the play might have been subtle with. And I think the problem with The Whale, like I said at the beginning, is it just underestimates how much the audience is willing to buy in to complexity or anything like that and instead rest back on being a play. People come into this space and uh, dish out their problems in monologues and even though it's Charlie's house, uh, he has to always be there so Sadie Sink gives him some sleeping pills so he can sleep for three monologues. <laughs> like it's They didn't do enough work in adapting it to make it necessarily filmic that being said i think they did a great job uh matthew oblique the 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 cinematographer uh, cinematographer and uh aronofsky did a good job in making it so confined it feels claustrophobic that you know when hong chow goes outside to smoke a cigarette we're like oh yeah fuck yes outside i like that sort of thing (laughs) but just being pouring rain as if it's like more excuses for no one to ever go outside right it just it's it all the places where it could have gone with less information and more subtlety, it just shoves down exactly what you should be feeling at any given moment. And so it's like a whole bunch of... I I don't think I mind any of the performances in the movie outside of maybe Ty Simpkins. But it just doesn't cohese as a whole vision of a film, I don't think. It maybe throws out a whole bunch of ideas, but then needs to end like a stage play does with like a big, you know, blackout yeah. moment that we could walk out of the theater. The ending is not satisfying. I feel like there's a few scenes before that where Fraser it could have ended kind of engages the waterworks and maybe an ambiguous ending would have been sharper. Um mm. again, I'm just like there's parts where he's bawling and, and trying to get his life together in these final moments that I found very moving, but to your point the final beat of the movie, a little bit of a theatrical eye roll. Um, yeah. I, I just da- watched... Darren Aronofsky needs to talk to God and just get over it <laughs> and then I, move uh, on. I just watched Women Talking, finally, as well. And, and there's a movie that's doing the, like, play as a movie thing better, even though it's not a play. Yeah. Um, just more dynamic yeah. camera work, more perspectives, uh, finding ways to go outside and, and then Less color. Sweep back inside. Um, well, you... I don't know. The whale is, it rivals. Uh, <laughs> it is, in, it is very monotone. Drab. Yeah. Um, but your point, Katie, about some of the dialogue Beth Morton has, I just thought Sadie Sink. Sadie Sink stinks. Yeah, she's no good. <laughs> in this, she's just in this a, movie. She is not she's an a real mad teen who never me. does anything but be mad real mad. This, like she's in such a so she's in such a single register the entire time, and like same with Ty Simpkins and same with Samantha <laughs> Wharton to a certain point, which again is why Hung Chow like manages to build all of these different layers of character. It's yeah, like she was being directed is, by a different director. 
it is so um we're talking so much about like the realism versus or the authenticity of Frazier playing a 600 pound man when we should really be interrogating that uh samuel hunter not write for teenagers does it's like hello fellow kids i don't what do, what do teenagers act like uh this is this is such a stereotype of a she was trying to help him really yeah okay movie. um the whale i mean the whale there's interesting the whale i i if you aren't absolutely turned off by all of the accurate things katie said plus the pre-buzz of this movie i think it's valid to be like i don't want to deal with that or I, any of those I would have feelings. a hard time recommending it. I, I should say like I'm I'm also really totally understanding of all criticisms against this. Again, like at the top mentioned that our review on Polygon just felt like it was really mean spirited to the to the way Katie was describing and, and I get that. I, I really everyone's gonna have a different reaction to this. It all seems valid to me when we're talking about addiction or we're talking about body um, everyone's going to come at it from a different place. Hard movie to recommend. Hard movie to recommend. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think if, if you... Not a fun watch. I think if you're a person who sees the marketing for this and thinks that it might uh, stir up uh, feelings in yourself about your self-image and self-worth in society, do not see this movie. You have my full permission not to see it. Um, I yeah. mean, I don't think it's a very good movie on top of it, but I'll, that's another aspect of it. Like, there's this whole other conversation about movies that like, dredge up trauma and like represent pain in various ways that you can talk about and trigger warnings, et cetera. But yeah, you just have my permission not to see the whale. I saw this movie the day after I saw the menu. Watch the menu. <laughs> uh, much better use of food in the menu and among many other yeah. things. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches, deputy editor over at Polygon. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches, which I think is also where I am at Letterboxd. Uh, in movies when I try and see them. Uh, we have a website, fightingintheworroom.com, where you can listen to old episodes of the show. So many episodes as our our letters at the beginning mentioned a decade of episodes. <laughs> um, have we reviewed other Brendan Fraser movies? We did the Soderbergh that he was in two years ago. I, I it was on my top ten of the year, and I can't even fucking remember the name of it. Um, what is no, it called? Katie? No way out. No sudden, no sudden move. move. No sudden move. Fraser, that was the beginning of the Fraser's aunts. Um, anyway, go listen to old fighting in the war episodes on. And David Ehrlich wasn't here uh, this evening, but he is on this podcast. He's the senior film critic at IndieWire. Quiddick at IndieWire. You can follow him on Twitter at David Ehrlich. I am Dave Gonzalez. You can follow me on Twitter at DA7E. You could email all of us at FITWR.podcast at gmail.com. We would also like your Apple podcast reviews like you heard at the top of the episode. You can find me on Trial by Content. Uh, with Joanna and Neil over on the Ringer Network or wherever you find fantastic podcasts. We're coming up on February's Zombie Trial Royale. It's going to be a month we try to figure out the best zombie movie ever um, because of a little show called The Last of Us. Uh, check it out. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. I still need to catch up on The Last of Us. We'll get there. If you're wondering if we'll talk about The Last of Us, we weren't going to do it without David, obviously. 
Um, you can find me on the Little Goldman Podcast with lots more talk about the Oscars, um, including a, a bonus episode this week with uh, Joe Reed, friend of this podcast, and that one talking about lots of fun Oscar stats, including some of the ones I shamelessly used here. Here's my credit to <laughs> Joe for all of those. Um, you can find me on Twitter at KDRich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. We're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you can drop your own Oscar stats or answer this week's lightning round question, which was... Since Justin Roiland is out at Adult Swim and Rick and Morty need to be recast, who would you pick to voice this grandpa and grandson traveling through the multiverse? I kind of do want to hear answers on this. Uh, Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. 